Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host, the Hall of Famer Jim Cott, and this is Cott's Corner. Jeez, with you on the guitar and me on the drums, we could we could kill it out there in our own garage band. Yeah, we got Adam Wainwright plucking that guitar pretty good now, too. Yep, little Jack McDowell on the side. We could, we could have our own little band here and hit the road the, with our audience. We got a great show in store for you today, a little, little potential breaking news um, before we get into our, our regular format. But we uh, want to just thank you, 51,000-plus subscribers, grassroots MLB front offices, 74 countries. We appreciate you banging the drum for us. Helped us get onto iHeartRadio's podcast network. Uh, make sure after the show, give Jim five stars. Write some great comments there because just like they do in baseball, we are constantly battling the analytics of the podcast world. We want to make sure iHeart knows they got a great product here. So give us that same support you gave us to get get that cup of coffee in the bigs. We want to stay there. Uh, Jim, welcome back to your show. I know you got some got some interesting potential news for us. Uh, yeah, this, you know, this could be groundbreaking stuff. I would think if it happens uh, because of the uh, splash it would make, they will probably wait till after the World Series if it happens. But the rumor is that the San Francisco Giants may hire a female manager. I believe they've had uh, one or two uh, females that have been coaches in their organization. But, uh, you know, that's going to stir up the old dinosaurs from my era and say, what's going on? But uh, from personal experience, I have to say, uh, with my late wife and my current wife, I've been married to two ladies who have exceptional leadership skills. And I think if uh, if any manager, male or female, would come in and start to hire coaches with a blend of major league playing experience plus the statistical expertise uh that could set a precedent and uh, and and they could be uh they could be successful that'd be gro- real groundbreaking territory for them so we'll see if that actually comes to fruition yeah and i think that's the case in a lot of these instances uh, you know the manager of course takes the the fall when when they don't do well but surrounding leaders with the right people or giving them an opportunity to surround themselves with weaknesses that they may have, um, I think it's, it's optimal for having success in that role. Yeah, they're, they're not females, but we're going to see two managers who I think really follow that philosophy. They're going to hook up in the American League Championship Series, and that's Bruce Bochy and uh, Dusty Baker. Yeah. You, know, you, don't, you don't see them staring at iPads, and they, they hire coaches that they trust and and delegate authority to, and, uh, you know, they manage the old school way. Uh, and, uh, so, and they've both been very successful. So there's no reason that a, uh, a female with leadership skills couldn't do the same thing. Yeah. I thought about you with a couple of pitching moves that Bochi made. Uh, he, he left Cody Bradford in the game the other day, three innings of relief, which you never see anymore. And he let him work through some problems. Uh, they had a big lead. And yeah, it just allowed them to kind of work through it all. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a growing experience. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to talk about with these playoffs that have uh, that have happened. First of all, and I think particularly with uh, with my twins, uh, I, I think uh, teams like the Twins and the Orioles have brought a lot of joy to their fan base, and the Twins particularly cannot be as disappointed uh, as the other teams because. Uh, they, they've grown as a team. They have a, a core of youth uh, that I think can, 
you know, can be sustainable for several years. So they can't be too disappointed. I thought of their games and I thought of the psychology of pitching versus uh, what is used today. And that's just the statistical knowledge and particularly uh, the Sonny Gray game and Sonny yeah. Gray, uh, right-hand pitcher, good curveball for those of you not familiar with him, even though his numbers didn't look that impressive, he really had a Cy Young type year. And Sonny has an excellent curveball. And he pitched a couple of dominant games with his curveball. But that game against the Astros, he was so predictable. And I think when you get late in the year and you've thrown that many breaking balls, it tends not to be as sharp. And the example I use of the uh, the old school psychology of pitching, which no surprise a, a pitcher like Greg Maddox would possess. So back in the 90s, when the only time you could see a game was on TBS nationally, and Greg is pitching for the Braves against the Giants in the Barry Bonds era. And they played in Atlanta, and uh, he pitched very effectively with that great changeup that he had. Well, now the way the schedule worked out, 10 days later, you will be facing that same team in their park. So two starts later, he's pitching in San Francisco, and I'm watching it. It's an afternoon game. And all of a sudden, you could sense the San Francisco hitters are saying, okay, let's be alive for that changeup. He threw nothing but fastballs the first three innings, and they couldn't touch him. And that's that's how the psychology of pitching, the art of pitching works, instead of just saying, all right, Sonny Gray's had a good curveball, and we're going to keep going to it. And, and they they never think, those that haven't had pitching experience, they never think that maybe sort of using the opposite approach and the element of surprise might be very, uh, very uh, effective. And in Sonny's case, I felt bad for him. I think he gave up seven hits, two home runs, and all on breaking balls. In fact, in general, a lot of the damaging hits in these playoff games have been on poorly executed breaking balls because the scouting report will say, well, this guy's a good fastball hitter, so let's just keep throwing him breaking balls. But if you don't throw him a good one, you're you're going to pay the price. And we saw that in so far in a lot of these playoff games. Yeah, I think your point is is logical and well taken, especially in today's world where they're treating the game like a dividend. They're breaking it up into parts, trying to make it like this nicely fit puzzle. And if you can just read a data sheet, you can predict the behavior of what a pitcher is going to do more so than ever before. Yeah, I saw the shots in the dugout oftentimes, particularly the Twins games, and and the uh, pitching coach is looking at at the iPad, which I'm sure there's information there. But uh, when I was a pitching coach, I, I looked at the pitcher's motion. I looked at the way the hitters were fouling the ball off, where they laid on his fastball. You know, what does his motion look like? Is it, We didn't have all the high technology, but you could kind of tell with your eyes if he looked the same or not. So, uh, and, and that's what I liked about Torrey Lovello. I mean, he's a manager that I think watches the game, and, and I love that what he did. I think we talked about it the last time playing uh, Longoria because of the heartbeat of the athlete and, and the stability of a veteran player, and it, it's refreshing to have uh, managers looking at that part of it instead of all the technology that's out there. Yep. You, you hit a great phrase, and I, was, I, was, I just wrote it down before you said it, and uh, my son Tanner had asked me. We were watching Dusty Baker. We were watching Bruce Bochy. And he asked me this simple but deep. He goes, what are they doing right now? And, there was, and I said, you know what? They're watching the game. They're exactly. watching the game. And that's, uh, it sounds like 
a silly answer like you're brushing them off. But nowadays, that's rare watching the game. You know, that's what I, I learned in broadcasting. And that's I want to touch on that because I'm so disappointed in what's happening to the broadcast, the television business, is that it's, it's really become talk radio with pictures. Uh, nobody ever lets the game breathe only because they're inundated with all these statistics. And and truth be known, a lot of these percentages and statistics that are shown on TV, they're informing the gamblers of uh, what kind of parlay bet to make, which they promote before the games. And I know I'd have my bosses back in the day uh, say, hey, you never get criticized for not for for saying too little. You get criticized for saying too much. Let the game breathe. There's pictures there. You can you can watch it. But I was so fortunate. I learned from experts like John Madden and uh, and Dick Stockton and Dick Enberg and and Bill White and in uh, Madden in particular. I, I learned in the early days when I you know as all new broadcasters do, you tend to what am I going to do for three hours? So you have copious notes. And then you find out the best way to communicate the game to the viewer or the listener is just watch the game and see where the ball goes and what happens. And uh, so it's good to see uh, managers like Tori and then I, I think Dusty and Bruce Bochy would be in that category and do exactly that. Yeah. And the kind of the note on, on the broadcasting, I find myself more often than not now turning the volume down and oftentimes not looking at the screen so much because you're right. It, it's like talk radio with, with just pictures and stats blasted, even when the batter, the, the pitcher batter combination, it gets distracting because if, and I don't want to get people triggered on this, but behind the catcher, it's usually rolling advertisements and two out of yeah. two out of three are gambling ones. I remember when those first came out, those signboards behind uh, home plate. And I thought, what are they doing? That's got to be in the early days. They were very distracting to the infielders as you could relate to because the, the ground balls were coming sometimes. Now they got to the rotating boards where they, I think during the pitch, they can, they can rotate them and black them out or something. But all that signage was, uh, uh, was very distracting to the infielders. That's what I loved about uh, when my dad took me to my first games in 1946 at Briggs Stadium. I walked up that ramp, and it was nothing but dark green background, green grass, and white uniforms. There was no signage whatsoever. And it really looked like a ballpark. And, and of yeah. course, that's what. Most oh, yeah, that's that, as you're describing. Like. That's beautiful. Yeah. The uh, hey, you, you put a point in our notes and I, I want you to touch on it because it's important, I think, for our young pitchers. And obviously the major leaguers struggle with it, too. But during a lot of the playoffs, I get text messages from a lot of our hosts. Mark Wiley, former pitching coordinator for the Rockies, was 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 killing the killing me on this. And it was 2 hits. How many 2 hits were given up? during the playoffs so far where the pitchers got the batter down, no balls, two strikes. And uh, to him, that's sacrilegious. T talk to that a little bit. I know you mentioned Joe Ryan, I think, as, as one. Well, it, it, Mark's exact – of course, I know Mark from our Twins days, but he's exactly right. And I, I, I actually made a note in my notes about that. It particularly hurt the Twins pitchers uh, because uh, I think it was Caleb Thielbar who gave up that game winner to uh, Abreu, but he had Alvarez 0-2, and the pitch was right out over the plate. And uh, where he could extend his arms, he got a base hit. And, and it goes back to Sonny Gray as well. None of the Twins pitchers ever made the hitters look uncomfortable. 
And when guys are swinging like that, you, you've got to have, and you have to work on this pitch. You can't just all of a sudden pick it out of your pocket and think you're going to have command of it. You have to work on how to brush a hitter off the plate. And I may have told you this before when I was a pitching coach for the Reds. Uh, after batting practice, after a pitcher threw his batting practice session, he would come down to the bullpen. I'd have a, a catcher down there. And I would put a double-sided, double-flap helmet on, and I would stand up left-handed uh, with my forearm level with the ground so you could throw the ball right underneath in my armpit area. So I said, I want you to throw five pitches right here and make me move backwards, make me move my feet. And then I would do it right-handed. And I said, when you get in a game and you want to brush a hitter back without hitting him or without getting warned, but in a perfectly legal way, you have to work on that pitch. And I didn't, I, I noticed that some of the Houston pitchers, they, they put a little bow tie on Correa and also on Royce Lewis, I think one time. But other than that, I didn't see any pitchers make the hitters look uncomfortable. They just allow them to step on in like they're hitting off a tee. And if you notice today, hitters use that batting glove on their lead wrist, right-handers would be their left wrist, with a padding on the back of it because they start the bat with their hands and they immediately dive into the ball. And uh, that's where that's where pitchers have to begin to uh, discourage hitters from doing that. And those 0-2 pitches, particularly the Twins, uh, did a lot of damage to them. I was taught by, uh, by Eddie Lopat and Johnny Sane, and I think Maddox did this very well, but it took me a while to learn it. But the best place to throw an 0-2 pitch is within the within the borders of the plate, which is 17 inches wide. So you don't have to throw it wild high or wild outside. But if you throw a pitch below the knees, almost down in the dirt, as, as a hitter, because in my early days as a pitcher, we got to hit. So I learned a lot about this. When, when a pitch comes in and it looks like it's going to be over the plate, but it's low, you have a tendency to go after it, sometimes high as well. In or out, you can recognize and you can take it. But the perfect 0-2 pitch is something between the knees and the ground where it looks like a, a pit. And that's why that splitter is so effective for a lot of pitchers because it looks like it's going to be a knee-high strike and then the bottom falls out of it and they get a lot of strikeouts on it. But this throwing a pitch, like particularly with the Twins, anywhere where a hitter can reach it with the barrel of the bat, uh, that did a lot of damage to them. Yeah, we saw that. I think Austin Riley hit that game winner early on in the playoffs, uh, kind of reached out with, a, I think it was a slider or whatever they call it now, a sweeper, um, poked it over the left field fence. Yeah, I was glad to hear one of the announcers said, I refuse to call it a sweeper. I mean, all of a sudden we think we have a new pitch. That pitch has been around uh, when I came up, and, and you know that's a long time ago. We, we began to throw a half curve, half slider. We called it a slurve. And that's what it is now. It's a sweeper. It's uh, it, it's it's uh, harder than a curveball, not as hard as a slider, and it has a bigger break than a slider, but not as big a break as a curveball. So it's a slurve. It's a hybrid. Yeah. We can't just call them all breaking pitches, right? Well, you do that, too. That's usually what I did. You know, when you do games as an announcer on an everyday basis, see the same team, you learn – what the pitcher has so you can identify it. But oftentimes, particularly today, when you're sitting way up uh, high in, in the new ballparks, 
uh, and you don't want to look at the monitor, you want to look at the field. Sometimes it can be hard to determine really what what the pitch is other than to look at the catcher's glove and see which way he moves it. Yeah. You had made a point in your notes about, uh, and this was in, in relation to the gambling to take us back regarding Nolan Ryan. Um, he never, never lost a game leading in the seventh. Um, t- touch on that a little bit. Well, all these statistics and percentages, you know, they, they tell you what happened in the past, but I, particularly in postseason play, I think they can throw them out the window because you're seeing, you're seeing the best hitters, the best pitchers, you're seeing the best teams. And so all those percentages that worked against the bottom teams, they might not mean anything. And then the one that stood out was when Nolan Ryan, uh, the, the Astros took a three game lead against the Phillies back in the uh, game five of the National League Championship Series in 1980. Then the graphic was Nolan Ryan has never lost a game after having the lead in seven innings. And lo and behold, the Phillies knocked him out and scored six runs and they won the game. So uh, those statistics like that, they, the, the graphics people are hired for a reason. So they like to throw that stuff up there all the time. But as a player and a manager, you have to throw those things out the window because they don't tell you what's going to happen today. You don't know how that pitcher feels in the seventh inning. You don't know this hitter who's been 0 for 10 off this pitcher. All of a sudden, the last couple weeks of the season, he started to swing the bat really well. So those percentages aren't going to play into that. So I just wish that I hope there are managers and, and coaches that kind of uh, once the once the postseason starts, throw them away. I remember uh, pitching game two of the World Series in 1965, and our advanced scout was a scout that signed me, Dick Winsick. And before technology, you know, had reams of paper going over the Dodger hitters. And I said, Dick, no disrespect, but I'm not even going to look at them because they have never seen me and I have never seen them. And I'm going down and away, down and away. I'm going to pitch the way that I did. And, and uh, the first game worked very well. Actually, the, the damaging hit in game seven, which Lou Johnson hooked it off the fair pole, was a, a fairly decent pitch. Uh, outside corner, and he just ambushed me. He dove out there and and hooked it. I should have knocked him down before that, but I didn't. (laughs) So (laughs) I think you have to go with what your strength is and not pay attention to all those uh, reports. Yeah, and I think you're right. It's attributed, obviously, to the the wave of analytics and the the wave of gambling in our game right now. You made a great point, and it kind of goes along with the theme here, that usually the, the AL East is the everybody's talking about them in the playoffs. It's usually the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Rays, rarely the Orioles, but now the Orioles had won their hundred. Um, they're the dominant team and, and have that reputation for being a powerhouse. Not so, so much in this case, in, in this postseason. No, that, I mean, uh, we were talking about that last, uh, or actually yesterday out on the golf course about how for years, well, it's this, the beast of the East, the American league East, the strongest division, you know, in baseball, well, the, the American League East was 0-7 in postseason play. <laughs> Toronto gets beat by the Twins. Uh, Texas beats the Orioles. And uh, who else was it? Oh, it was uh, the Diamondbacks, of course, beat the, uh, the the Dodgers. That's two West teams. But somebody else in the uh, in the East, uh, the Rays, the, uh, the Rays, the Orioles. And the Jays. And the Jays, yeah. They all went 0-7. So, I think uh, we have to respect those two teams in the West. And, of course, now we're, we're learning to respect. I watched, I recorded and watched this morning 
when I got up the uh, Diamondbacks beating the Dodgers. And uh, all of a sudden, there's a team that's going to get some recognition with a lot of names that none of us are very familiar with. But they're again, they're coming out of the uh, they're coming out of the National League West. Yeah. How about that? I know you mentioned Longoria. You get the other kid on the other side of the diamond there, Christian Walker. I think he hit another home run last night. But they hit four home runs in the first inning. How about the one home run? Marino hits it down the line, foul, just slice foul. Yeah. And so he gets back up, and the very next pitch he hits over the left. I felt bad for Lance Lynn. You know, the Dodgers' starting rotation has just been decimated with injuries. And and Lance Lynn has been a veteran gamer, innings eater for years, but he was out there on fumes. And uh, four home runs in one inning, which is uh, – or four home – yeah, was it all in one inning? Yeah, no, first inning. Yeah, and, uh, which is, of course, a postseason – record but uh you know that that seems to be the uh the trend that we're seeing even in postseason is uh home runs strikeouts and uh and again along with the o2 pitches some some leadoff walks that have hurt and a few costly errors right back to the sort of common fundamentals i cringe every time uh that like the twins had verlander uh, a couple base runners in the early innings two three times and nobody ever thought to try to hit the ball to the right side to maybe advance a runner or score an early run and take the early lead. It's the uh, same approach. Swing hard in case you hit it and hope you run into one and hit a home run. Yeah. Every now and then you, you get to see a little bit of movement with that ball. I saw Altuve lead off the game with a bunt single the other day and uh, got real excited about that. I actually caught it and was able to record it and put it on on Facebook. I was going to ask your opinion of, and, and I don't know how much you've been able to watch him, but the, the Rangers have a young kid, Evan Carter, playing left field. Uh, yeah. Lefty hitter. Uh, when, he, when I did some research on his background, didn't he's, he appears nowhere on any perfect game, nothing against perfect game, but nowhere in any perfect game ranking system, not in the country, not in his region, not in his state. Um, doesn't appear anywhere on Baseball America's top 500 um, when he was coming out. Uh, into the pro ranks. So here's a kid who's 20, I think he's 20 years old, maybe 21, starting in left field in the postseason for Bruce Bochy. So um, I mean, how do you explain that? that that's I'm, a, I'm wondering. I'd love, to, I'd love to talk to the Rangers and find out how, you know, who scouted him, where I was telling a, a parent a couple of days ago because their, their son really loves baseball. He's a decent high school player, and he's looking for a kind of a small college to go to that he probably wouldn't be D1 caliber. And I said, well, anywhere where you can go and play, you're probably not going to go unnoticed because these days, you know, college coaches recruit with uh, on the internet. They can send a, you know, they can send images of a guy swinging the bat, throwing the ball. So somebody's going to find you somewhere if, if you're a standout player. And I don't know how the Rangers found him, but, uh, you know, he reminds me a little bit. I think of uh, of Car- is it Corbin Carroll with the uh, with the Diamondbacks? Yeah, center yeah. field. Is, is that you center know left fielder? Yeah, they're not they're, they're not all uh, they're not all about lift and launch. Uh, they look like they're hit the ball where it's pitched, and he probably hasn't been uh, Carter probably hasn't been contaminated yet with the uh, with the drive line uh, influences of you know try to hit it harder and. and and try to bulk up and launch it, so it's refreshing to see. Yeah, he well, he was how he was discovered. Uh, I think one, his coach had played minor league baseball and and was operating like the old old school 
bird dog scout, which don't, don't exist anymore, um, where he knew his area well, knew the makeup of the kid, which is what, you know, the, the, uh, what you would call, I guess the bird doggers, they, that was their, to me, their value. They knew the makeup of a kid because they were watching the same area, small area for years and made a phone call and said, here's a kid that can play. And, uh, you know, and he, and they took a shot on him and he could play. And that's, it goes back to the phrase you said with the managers, the Bochies, the Dusty Bakers. How did they find them? They watched the game. That's yeah. It. Well, you know, you use that term, and I'm sure a lot of fans today have, have not heard it before, bird dog, but that was common use when I was, a, a, say, a teenager. They'd say, oh, there's a there's a scout in, at, at the game that he's a bird dog for the Braves or something. Bird dog means he will he will look at a player and he'll make a call and pass it on to the regional scout or something, and then they'll have a cross-checker come in and look at the guy, and that's how that's how players get discovered. Yeah, you've got the you got the the associate scout. I guess that would be the technical term for it. Um, yeah. if they existed now, and then the area scout, then the cross-checkers, and yeah, bird doggers were around when I was playing too. They were to me, they were the, the king of the area. They were your way out. They were your way to. That was your conduit. It's it's unfortunate that they've kind of gone by the wayside, but that's how Evan Carter. Yeah, I mean, this this wasn't this isn't a bird dog guy, but that's why I think one of my favorite baseball movies is Trouble with the Curve with Clint Eastwood. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you've seen that. But I that's, did. Yeah, that's just a great example of of high technology versus uh, old school that could could recognize immediately that this so called stud number one pick uh, couldn't hit the curveball. Yeah. You know, so he he just followed that out by watching, and uh, he, he didn't think he heard it. He said he could hear it. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I love that movie. Yeah, it's a good one. I, I enjoy that as well. That's I'd la- uh, when they come into his little his apartment. He's got the stacks of newspapers. That's how you you found stats, right? Back in the time, and uh, that's that's good. As far as the the disparity between the AL East and and the West, uh, anybody catch your eye other than what we've talked about? And then if not, what, 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 what about the NL? What's your thoughts on them? Well, I think it's going to be interesting. The Phillies are doing what they did last year. Uh, uh, they got a little, I think, I don't know if uh, Strider's, I think he's going to be a little tougher in the start tonight than he was, but boy, Philly's got a lot of energy going in that ballpark and they've got uh, a lot of weapons one through nine. So it wouldn't surprise me to see him win again. And then, how unusual would that be to see uh, uh, the Diamondbacks and the Phillies, and then you have the Rangers and Houston, which Houston is no surprise. I've told all my Twins fans, I said, look, beating Houston will be tougher than winning the World Series because these guys are are seasoned, they're experienced, they're talented, and uh, you know, big games don't bother them because they're in there every October. So they're by they're by far the most seasoned, and I think. Uh, uh, the team you'd favor the most, but how unusual it would be in the networks would cringe if all of a sudden they had the Rangers and the Diamondbacks in the World Series. Oh, I know. Yeah, would, but it would certainly be good baseball. And you did call that before the before the season was over. You said if the if the Astros do get in, because we were, I mean, we're going right down the wire whether or not they were going to get in. Yeah, that uh, they 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 were going to be the team to beat on that side. And I like the, I can't turn away from Philadelphia watching them play. Yeah. Um, just, just love the way they go about it. Uh, you know, Rio Muto to me is if a young kid's trying to watch how to catch, that's that's a great, that's an athlete behind the plate. Yeah, he was well. He he was, you know, he was. I think the quarterback was uh, quarterback at Oklahoma. 
he was a uh, he was a very good football player, but he was also a uh, in high school he was a shortstop. Oh, okay, yeah. He uh, I can't remember who the I have to remember who the scout was that told me the story. But when they went to go watch him play, um, they went to go watch him as a shortstop. And that game, I guess whoever the catcher was normally was they had an injury, so he had to pitch. He was their next pitcher, so they had JT behind the plate. And he apologized to the scout, the high school coach, saying, I know you came to watch him uh, play shortstop, but we have to have him catch today. And the scout called back to the front office and said, I think we found our catcher. Don't tell anybody. And they ended up drafting him high first round as a, as a catcher instead of a shortstop. And nobody else yeah, saw those, it. Those are cool stories. And that's, again, where those scouts – I a couple examples. I remember when Terry Ryan was the uh, – uh, the farm director for the for the Minnesota Twins, and he went scouting uh, Texas A&M, and they had a really good infielder named Scott Livingstone, who ended up drafted by the Tigers, and then Chuck Knobloch was kind of an all-purpose player. He was playing center field for Texas A&M, and Terry came back, and he said, I just found our second baseman, our number one draft pick, and I said, oh, it's going to be Scott Livingstone, because Chuck Knobloch was not the profile of today's athlete. He wasn't 6'3", 220. You know, he was kind of a stocky little kid. And so sure enough, the Twins draft him. And instead of shortstop, Wayne Terwilliger, this old school infield coach, works with him and he becomes, you know, an all-star second baseman. Uh, And there are a lot of catchers uh, or a lot of end up playing catcher, but like Bob Boone, Joe Torrey, they were third baseman. Troy Percival was a catcher and ended up being an outstanding relief pitcher. So it takes a lot of scouts and and people in your organization that have the eyes for that kind of thing to be able to say, hey, this guy's, well, Jerry Kendall, when he coached Arizona, Jerry was a teammate of mine. I was out there doing college games. And I said, tell me about this Trevor Hoffman. I know his brother was a big league baseball player, but he's your shortstop. He said, yeah, he's my shortstop, but he's going to pitch in the big leagues. Well, how do you know that? Well, because Jerry played and he just had a sense of Trevor's arm. And and, uh, obviously he wasn't that good a hitter either, but he could already forecast that he was going to be a a pitcher. Yeah, that's that's only stuff that experience can can do for you with 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 the playoffs itself. I know you had you had written some notes and you're you're phenomenal about not second guessing uh, pitchers. Cause as you say, you don't know unless you're out there on the mound, what pitch you're going to throw. Cause I've tried to get you on that a couple of times asking your opinion, cause I want to know it, but you, you always go back to that. And I think that's the, the true nature of a, of a, of a pitcher that you have. But uh, there, there was a, that, that Riley home run. Um, I think it was, was it with the uh, Riamuto, uh, what do you call it? A breaking pitch or a slider. Yeah. Yeah. Take, take us through that. Well, I think that was an example of a poorly thrown breaking ball. And and I think I could I could I couldn't second guess JT Real Muto on that one because I really think uh I'm trying to think who threw was it that wasn't Wheeler. I'm trying to think who that pitcher was that threw it later in the game. It wasn't Hoffman, was it? Yes, yes, it was Hoffman. It was Hoffman. And if he throws that ball down and away anywhere you got to believe that Riley, geared for a fastball, is going to swing and, and they're probably going to get him out. So I can understand calling that pitch. Normally, you you don't want to get beat on a breaking ball when you can throw the ball 98 miles an hour. But uh, I, I think that was just an example of 
there's nothing wrong with the call, but the pitcher did, just didn't execute the pitch. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of these playoff games because some of these pitchers have gone to the mound in today's world where 150 innings is a lot of innings, uh, and, and every pitch is thrown with, with a lot of, you know, swing and miss behind it, that uh, at this time of the year, those breaking balls may not be quite as sharp. That's why the Twins had a, a bit of an advantage. They, they brought Chris Paddock in last night, and they have to be encouraged that this guy could be a major factor in their plans for next year. He was a, a pitcher that was with the Padres and yep. under, underwent surgery, but the Twins went ahead and, uh, and signed him and gave him some pretty good money just to rehab this year. But he looked like the real deal last night for two and a fraction innings uh, because he's fresh. He hadn't been used during the year. Yeah, he was a flamethrower back with San Diego. It was good to see him back. And you called that too before. You thought that that could possibly give the Twins an advantage having two guys come in that hadn't pitched a lot or at all this year. That may be a little yeah, rusty. I, I thought, you know, when I saw uh, Rocco, of course, I'm a, I'm a big Joe Ryan fan. I was, I'm close to Joe and I text with him a lot. And I think, I think he was relishing the opportunity to pitch a big game last night. And then after two innings, Rocco took him out. But what I liked is there was a shot of Rocco going over to him, uh, Rocco Baldelli, the manager of the Twins, going over to him, tapping him on the shoulder. And and he probably said what Torrey Lovello did to, to his starter. He said, you know, I know I'm kind of mistreating you here. You want to stay in the game, but here's here's our plan for right now. So I think what Rocco told Joe, nothing personal. You're throwing the ball well, but they had three left-hand hitters out of the four coming up. And Theobar's been good, unfortunately. He, the leadoff guy got on, and then this stupid rule that exists that I hope they do away with, you have to stay in there for three hitters. So yeah. he had to face Abreu, and uh, he got one out over the plate, and Abreu hit the game-winning home run. I think without that rule, uh, Rocco probably would have brought in a right hitter, and he'd already used Stewart. So he was playing it like a bullpen game to be able to win game four. So uh, it was nice of him to explain to Joe Ryan why he did that. Because, you know, if you're a starter and during the day you're pumped up, wow, I'm going to pitch game four, I got a chance to keep us in the series, and then all of a sudden after two innings they come over and say you're done, uh, that can be a little deflating. But I think pitchers today understand that because the game has operated a lot differently than it was years ago. Yeah, we've, we've, we've talked about it during the regular season with pitchers. I think it was Blake Snell took himself out of a game and another, another pitcher, I can't remember who it was, uh, spoke about, uh, it was a manager, manager should, manager should have taken me out, but we saw Jordan Montgomery battle Bruce Bochy. I think he had already pitched seven. This was early in the playoffs. They showed the camera them too. He was battling. He didn't want to come out again. He wanted to stay yeah. in, went right yeah, after. It was, uh, George Kirby with Seattle. He thought yes. that, well, I shouldn't have been in there, but you know, that's just the way that, that pitchers are trained and raised now, uh, in, we scoff at it, those of us that played in this previous era, but, you know, we didn't grow up like these kids did. We weren't coached and trained like these. It was a whole different, like, laws of survival. You had to get out there and pitch because if you didn't, somebody else going to take your job. Yeah. Nowadays, with the security of a, a nice financial contract and uh, you want to pay attention to uh, – uh, not injuring your arm. So the tendency is, well, you know, I've kind of had enough now. Is it time for me to come out? Of, we just never thought that way. But if I were raised in today's climate, maybe I'd think the same way. Uh, I would hope not. I'd have to say I'm glad I played when I did. And I, 
I wouldn't enjoy playing with the way the game is operated today versus the way we played in the 60s and the 70s. Yeah. Well, I, I wrote down the pattern that you, you, you talked about throughout this show, and it should be a, a telltale for all pitchers out there, a leadoff walk, an error, and then a, a, a poor, poor breaking pitch. That's disaster um, in, in any realm. So and I think if kids watch that, watch how bad leadoff walks turn into problems. And then, you know, infielders got to be fundamental behind. You, you brought up an infield point that um, I, I noticed it as well these infielders taking throws from catchers on steals way in front of the base. Oh my goodness. I know catchers would just be screaming at infielders that stay back on the bag. And I noticed that with Albies, I think on the one, he's like three feet in front of the bag. Then you catch it and you have to reach back. And I'm sure you were trained. And one of the best I've ever seen at it was the late Gene Michael stick would straddle the bag and he would wait for the throw to come to him and he could just drop the tag drop right it, on yeah. the run. Drop it in, drop it out, because it takes right. less time. Yeah, and they, uh, I don't know if they don't teach that, but it frustrates catchers to have uh, – and the reason the infielders are doing it, I'm sure, is to avoid contact. Yeah, and it, but the, the part about infielders nowadays, like when you talk stick Michael, there were no contact rules then. I mean, they could come in, cleats up, knees up, barrel you over. Nowadays, the infielders are so protected, you would think, I mean, what do they have to lose to straddle the bag? They're not going to get hit. Right. They can't. It's impossible. It's uh, I guess the guy would be suspended for a week, probably. Yeah, if they if they straddled the bag and waited, and the guy slid into him, they'd call him out. And you're right, they'd probably yeah, right. put him on the suspended list for a few days. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's that's that was little league 101 right there. Um, you know, you catch you catch the ball, straddle the bag, and it's just that quick with the backside of your glove. You know, so you're not exposing the baseball to the base runner so they can kick it out. Well, boom, you, you right to the front of the bag. That's where he's going. It's just like you teach a first baseman. Don't sweep yeah. the runner. Where's he going? Just drop it in front of the bag. Um, well, it's like and a- you know from being a former infielder, I mean, like I saw Wayne Terwilliger and during my career with coaches that were veterans and weren't particularly outstanding players in the major leagues, but, boy, they could teach infielders how to get that tag in and out of there. And, and actually, before replay, you steal a lot of outs that way. Oh, yeah. I'm not even sure I ever tagged anybody, Jim. Right. <laughs> it's funny in the days when the double play was made and it was kind of the, you know, phantom where the second baseman oftentimes didn't even have his foot on the bag when he made the pivot. But nowadays with replay, of course, uh, you're not going to get by with that. Oh, yeah. The the area play, they'd call it. With yeah. That. But um, not in, in the other part with the, the fundamentals, I, you know, I mentioned JT Real Muto, but there's some good catchers in the postseason. I'm. Um, I'm having, and again, I, I watch all the games with my son, Tanner, but watching this, the one knee stuff is still not going away. Even with runners on base, it's driving me crazy. But I saw a stat put up on the board, and it said, I think JT Realmuto had the best pop time in Major League Baseball. And at the same time they showed it, I pulled up a random, you know, perfect game event where they post pop times for 14 and 15-year-olds. And if JT Realmuto was at a recent event, a national event for – perfect game he would have been the ninth best pop time catcher in the 14 year old division wow how does that happen yeah, just, be, just because <laughs> they're they're uh they're not on the one knee well they're they're uh they're, they're skewing the times i think with yeah the, uh, yeah you know with that because they you know his obviously there's no 14 year old and there's no catcher in the world that's got a better pop time than him and in uh you know with our exclusive right. game of major league baseball well, I, I think you know that's a great example of how uh, today's, I would say in the last 10 years, most of us that have a lot of experience are no longer a part of uh, 
hey, this is the way we did it. We're no longer a part of that because when I run into Johnny Bench and Phil Roof and Bob Boone and all, you know, my catchers from yesteryear that all just say, what in the world are they doing on one knee? But the, the current uh, the current coaches must see some value in it because they're teaching everybody to do it. Oh, it's a trickle down too. It's uh, all the way down to the youth level. And it's hard to, it's hard to argue against the validity of it because anybody that's teaching it just points to our, you know, the greatest league in the world, which is major league baseball to say, well, they're doing it. Um, And that becomes validation for parents uh, and kids. But I mean, like you said, all they got to do is watch the game. If they watch the game and they see, they'll see runners advancing for no reason. They'll see slower pop times. They'll see inaccurate throwing, uh, poor, poor receiving. Uh, the kid from the Twins, Kepler, even the strikeout last night, the last the last pitch of the game. Your job as a catcher, and you correct me if I'm wrong, as a pitcher, you're not gonna you're not gonna move balls into the strikes too often or at all, but you can take strikes into balls by moving your glove. That was a poorly received pitch on that last pitch, and they still called it a strike. Um, that catcher allowed that, that glove to, to, to go way out of the zone on the outside because he was on one knee and he was off balance, and you could see him sway a little bit. And uh, Kepler was mad. He, he was yeah, I, I was I was kind of surprised. I mean, first of all, in that situation, I can I can empathize with Matt Kepler. You, you I mean, you don't want to get caught. Uh, as Kirby Puckett used to say, if it's close, I'm swinging because I don't want to put my fate in the hands of the umpire. Yeah. So in that situation, if it's close, you almost have to be in swing mode. You don't want to get caught like Max did. But I, I was surprised they they didn't show that pitch over. They went right to the celebration. But I thought, sure, and that is a pitch that's missed more than any others because the umpire is looking over the inside shoulder yes. of the left hand hitter. And he doesn't get as good a view at that outside pitch. A little more guesswork involved. And I thought, sure, that was ball four. And of course, that would have been that would have brought Correa to the plate, which would have created some excitement at Target Field. But what uh, a story that would have been. I thought yeah. he. I I, I like the way he approached the series, especially the the, the first game. Um, he seems like he's matured over time. Yeah, I mean, he's 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 different. You know, coming up in the Twins organization when you had guys like Harmon Gillibrew and Tony Oliva and, and great players like Rod Carew, I mean, we were much more uh reserved, kind of respectful of the game. You don't you don't uh, show up the other team, you're not animated, but the, you know, that's I I've had to um uh, I've had to learn not to cling too much to the past, but to kind of accept what's happening today. I, I think of my manager, Chuck Tanner in Chicago. And I used to say, Chuck, how do you handle all these different personalities? And he said, you have to keep one eye closed and one ear closed. You don't want to see everything. You don't want to hear everything. So, you know, the thing that, that bothers me is, is all the theatrics and the celebrations and they get on base. And instead of looking where the uh, outfielders are, they're making all their, uh, signals to the guys in the dugout, and, and it's hard for me to accept that. But uh, they are—they are extremely physically talented players, much more so than any other generation that I can think of. Yeah. Well, if we could ever mesh the two a little bit, where the experience and the the process and the I guess the the traditional values uh, could mesh with this modern day athletic prowess, uh, boy, what what a game it could be. 
Yeah, I, I keep I, I chuckle about it when I see like the twins have this vest that's called uh, uh, Rakes of Minnesota because Minnesota is known for 10,000 lakes. So rake being the, the term for hitting. And when they run through that and slap everybody's hand, I'm thinking, I never saw Harmon Killebrew do that. I can't think of Henry Aaron doing that, you know, but that's that old school that I'm still kind of tied to of, uh, you know, when you lose, say little, when you win, say less. Yeah. You know, I heard, I heard a thought, I can't remember what manager it was, but it's on tune with what you're talking about where, you know, things are changing in that regard. We may not be able to stop the celebrations, but his rule was, um, and maybe it was the Orioles manager said, I've got a bunch of young guys that grew up in a, you know, an era of celebration. And I met them halfway said that if they want to celebrate in the dugout where it's not seen by the other team, then I'm okay with that. You know, get excited, do what you got to do. Um, if it's outside the dugout, I've got a problem with it. Um, so as not to show up the other team. So I thought that was probably the best, uh, meet in the middle, uh, description I've heard of how yeah. to handle celebration. Yeah, and, and the way it's different is the, the first thing usually when, say, Harmon Killebrew would hit a home run, and uh, he he'd had his usual trot around the bases, he'd tip his cap slightly to the fans and then just put his helmet quietly down. And the first thing some of the other hitters would come over and say, what was that pitch? What What's he, what's he, what's he been throwing you? When he's ahead in the count, all of they're talking about what's going on on the field. They have no, you know, no interest at all in celebrating, but that's completely different now. Yeah, no, it's uh, again, you see these kids choreographing and even at the young ages now, it becomes more important than a hitting approach, which again, well, we're, uh, that's why we're doing this network here. We're, we're not looking to, you know, blow it up. We're looking to educate and, uh, and help these kids learn that there's a there's a way to even enhance this this athletic skill that maybe hasn't been tapped into. Yet. Yeah, you, you, yeah. And I think we're we we've talked not a lot about it in this show, but we want to talk in the off season too. I heard another example uh, today from my uh, physical therapist. I've got to get a new hip here. Short. This one's kind of wearing down. So uh, she's really involved in uh, youth soccer, and then she referees. And she said, "I'm just amazed at the parents." that scream and holler at me when I'm volunteering my, my time. And I said, well, you can stop that in a hurry. I said, you just stop the game. You go over to the parent and say, you, you leave the field right now. We're not starting the game. And she said, I did that one time. Yeah. And the person that was in charge, they call him the assigner. He actually came over to the parent and said, we're not starting the game again until you leave. So we've got to do a, do a good job of, uh, uh, you know, of training parents to not urge their kids to do more and more than they're capable of doing at a at an early age and getting involved in uh, in the game and with with the referees and just either go to a movie and, or sit back and enjoy it. That's right. And what is Yogi Berra had a comment about Little League and parents, right? It's it's, it's Little League's great. Keep parents off the streets. Some yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Good. But, uh, I agree with you. I think parents, uh, you know, it's it's, it's again. Players, it's a different age. The parent generation is, uh, I mean, is, is is just enraged out there for whatever reason. And I asked a simple question to a parent and it actually calmed them down. This was over soccer. And just, I, I won't use the name. Um, they do listen, so they'll know who I'm talking about. But I just said, what about 12-year-old girls youth soccer enrages you so much to where you're out of your mind right now? And uh, they didn't have a good answer for it. And so I was trying to redirect their energy at me. I said, if they get mad at me, at least I can kind of 
walk them out of the area, but they, it calmed them a little bit because it's, I don't know what they do. There's nothing they're saying over there helps. Nothing is registering with their child. And in fact, it hurts them. And it, it, uh, it makes the game about something other than the kid, which it should be about to have fun and enjoy it. So I love your idea. Go see a movie. We should get a movie to help sponsor the show. We'll give free tickets to parents at certain. Yeah, we'll, have a, we'll have a drive-in movie at the little league complex. Oh, that's, that'd be awesome. I miss the drive-ins. Well, you know, you, you take it even to the injury factor, uh, like some, uh, uh, Kelly, who I was, uh, is my physical therapist, was saying her mother was on her about, uh, you know, she's a ballet dancer, but also uh, she was playing another sport. And her mother kept pushing her, pushing her to, uh, you know, I, I think it was uh, in soccer, you know, to, to work harder there. She said, I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to dance. Yeah. You know, I'm doing it for, for her benefit. And and what what's happening by parents that do push their kids at a young age, and one of my uh, friends, orthopedic surgeon David Alchek told me years ago that uh, a lot of his patients are these young girls that are playing soccer and lacrosse with ankle injuries because uh, their body is not matured yet. The bones and muscles haven't fused and they're having a lot of ankle injuries from all those stop and start and quick turns at too young an age. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the first things we have Sal Marinello, who's one of our podcast hosts, who's a performance coach and he talks about the uh, one of the first tests he does is ankle foot uh, mobility and yeah. the simple deep squat. Putting a kid in a deep squat right now, all the way down, they can't do it nowadays because a lot of it's because of the, you know, the, the lifestyle, the sitting at the computer, the poor posture, the, you know, and they're and again these the ones that are being pushed like this young lady was, they're trying to train these kids like they're adults and right. it's, they can't do it physically, emotionally. I mean, it's just. Uh, we, we need to uh, take a deep breath and start over, I think. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. It's, it's a tough, it's a tough uh, and steep hill to climb. I know uh, I mentioned before Rick Porcello, who will be back in the country soon, and he, he's going to start a company. I'm trying to get Jim Tomey to hook up with him and my friend John Stuper, who coached at Yale, and uh, he wants to form a company uh, of a doctor, a nutritionist, a physical therapist, uh, trainers, coaches, for for youth babe for 12 and 13 year olds to train properly and train the parents to treat their kids properly so that we don't have so many injuries uh before these kids ever get a chance to be uh to start i mean i'm so grateful when i look back on the fact that i was like 5 10 165 graduating from high school and after my first year of pro ball the the manager said well kid if you come up with a fastball you got a chance because I didn't really fill out and mature till I was like 19 years old. And then I, you know, I picked up the, uh, the power and the speed after that. But if you're forced to do that when you're only 15 or 16 and not physically big enough to do it, you're going to suffer some injury. No, I think it's great advice. And I, I like what Rick's trying to do too. I, I encourage you to keep encouraging him. I'm actually getting pulled out to, to do a lot of speaking engagements uh, on two fronts right now, part of them because of our podcast, but part because I tend to, I tend to uh, open my mouth about these topics outside the podcast too, is the question I get asked the most is there's all these gurus out there. How do you tell the difference? And I've asked on all of our 300 plus shows with, with some of the best minds in baseball, even they struggle with it right now, how, you know, trying to articulate it. And uh, I've got a method, I've got a, a way that parents can individualize. So I'm going to be out there speaking on that topic a ton. 
people need need to reach me, by all means, I'll go anywhere, speak to anybody about it. And the other one is training parents. Forget about training kids, training yeah. parents on how to do Those are the two big topics I'll be speaking at starting in November. Um, but uh, yeah, if I'm up in your, in your neighborhood or you're back down my way, I may have to pick you up and bring you with me. Yeah, that'd be that'd be great. I, I think it's a it's a great topic. I mean, I I don't know if we'll ever maybe in my lifetime, particularly not, but I don't know if we'll be able to to kind of get the trend going in the opposite opposite direction. But uh, I'd sure love to see it happen because there's so many uh, talented young kids out there that maybe don't reach the the benchmarks that college recruiters and coaches want. You don't throw hard enough. You don't hit the golf ball far enough, et cetera but yet they can play. And I used that example with Brooks Robinson when I spoke at his uh, memorial service a little over a week ago. I said, you know, if you, if you analyze the scouting report, if you look scouting report on Brooks, it would have average power, uh, average arm, maybe less than average speed, but excellent reaction time, lateral movement, uh, get the ball out of the glove and release it quickly. He had skills that you couldn't measure. And uh, kids like today, if you don't have the skills that they measure, you might get left behind. And we got to, we got to try to see that that doesn't happen. Well, I'm, I'm going to go out there banging the drum on. I'm going to hit the road like I used to in the old days with coaching and uh, speak to anybody anywhere about it. I think it's, I think it's important to our youth I think it's important to the health of all the games out there, baseball and, and all the ones that we're doing. And, um, you know, as I said, anybody needs me to do that, you just give a holler. I'll, I'll go anywhere. You had you had written one last note, and I've kept you almost an hour here, and I, I uh, appreciate the time. I know our audience does. You had written a note at the end end of your our show notes today, and it was a strategy note, and I think it's important, about taking a pitch after a walk, and then it was a fundamental thing about shortening your swing, putting the ball in play. Yeah, I think what's disappointing too when you when you watch these games and you you see all the talent that's out there is you'll see a pitcher, uh, he's struggling, he, he misses the strike zone, all of a sudden he walks a hitter, and and the next hitter's not disciplined enough. To, you you got to make him throw a strike, or you have to be a veteran hitter, uh, intelligent enough to recognize a strike from a ball, and you chase a pitch out of the zone. And just make it make it easy out when the when the pitcher is having trouble getting the ball over the plate. That's why uh, I remember when Dick Allen told Goose Gossage, and Goose told me this. He said, "When I got to the big leagues, Dick Allen called me over. He put his arm around me. He said, "Kid, look up at that scoreboard. That's all you need to know about how to play the game: the count, the inning, the score. And so that taking a pitch is one thing, and then." When a pitcher's blowing the ball by you and you and you have to hit a ball to the other way, nobody seems to want to shorten up their swing and just hit it the other way. And I, again, I refer to Dick Allen, who was one of the great hitters and power hitters in baseball. But if there's a man on second base and nobody out, he is going to find a way to hit a ground ball to the right side and advance the runner by shortening up his swing. And that is either not taught or it's just ignored today, and uh, they don't believe it's helpful. Yeah, it's a one one track swing. I saw guys doing that with two strikes last night to end two different games, and uh, you know, two strikes is a total different approach than when you're ahead in the count. And I, I encourage all young kids out there. We take, and I'll be overthrowing BP to my two boys today. We have two different portions of our workout where 
they'll work on 2-0 and 0-2. Um, two way different approaches as a hitter um, in terms of what you're trying to do with the baseball, regardless of who's on base. But with a guy on second base, at the very least, I mean, you, you want to get him in, but at the very least, he should be on third base with one out. Yeah, that was always in in uh, batting practice during the game. It was the old get him over, get him in. Yeah. Uh, so one swing was, you know, hit the ball the other way, get him over. And the other was maybe there's a man on third and one out. And now you want to uh, launch, a, launch a fly ball, not chase something low and hit a ground ball, but uh, try to get a pitch where you can drive to the outfield and get the runner in. Boy, you would eat these hitters alive today, wouldn't you? Well, I think that I think the pitching like uh, like Jamie Moyer, uh, you know, they're looking for they're looking for power. But look at what our our or Quiddy did last night to the Twins. I mean, uh, I had mentioned that yesterday afternoon. I said this guy hasn't had a good year, but I'm telling you, these young hitters geared for a fastball. And uh, I mean, they what was it the other night? Eight out of the last nine outs were strikeouts. Yeah. And, uh, and he just, you know, he just tantalized them with those little soft curves and change-ups and off-speed pitches. And I just think the way the game is today, those kind of pitchers, uh, I'd like to have a handful of them. Yeah, just put the ball in play, hitters. That's all we ask you to do. Well, uh, Jim, how do you want to leave the audience today? It was a great show, almost an hour today, filled with tons of information, including potential breaking news with San Francisco, possibly. Hiring yeah, the first female manager. Never know. Yeah, I, I just think it's going to be interesting to see, uh, you know, the psychology of game four. Braves have Strider going, um, and uh, Rob Thompson's not going to bring Wheeler back. He's going to save him for game five, but that means they'd have to go to Atlanta and play it. So to me, uh, this, is, this is the final game of the series for the Phillies. They need to treat this like, they have to win this game. I think if they go back to Atlanta, even with Wheeler pitching, uh, I would favor the Braves in that one. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting psychology of it. That's again, that comes from experience. You didn't read that off a spreadsheet, right? No. Don't have one. <laughs> right. Me neither. Me neither. Well, great show today. Again, episode 314 for our network. Uh, but uh, Cots Corner always delivers for our group out there. We'll be back next week with you we'll keep an eye on that breaking news like you said probably if they do it won't won't interfere with the world series and you know maybe announce it when it's over but certainly worth paying attention to to our audience fifty one thousand plus thanks for your support 74 countries grassroots the mlb front offices all paying attention help us get on iHeartRadio's podcast powerful podcast network um, we appreciate that you can still get us on apple amazon spotify or stitcher but make sure you do get on iheart let them know that they made the right choice giving us our cup of coffee and the bigs and like that pesky hitter that won't strike out. We're not going anywhere. We're going to keep delivering every week and special thanks to you, Jim, for what you do every week for the network. And hopefully the, the hip is better and then uh, wish you a great weekend and enjoy watching the games. All right. You as well, Dave. Always enjoyable. Me too.